I want to take just a moment and thank everyone who brought and uh, bought and brought a backpack filled with supplies. Um, I know that uh, God is going to use that in the life of some youngsters right here in Temple. And so I just wanted to thank you. Uh, I appreciate your generosity in doing that and, and being able to be a blessing uh, to a youngster and also to uh, their family. So thank you for doing that. Man, I just want you to know today that I love Jesus Christ. I love Jesus Christ and, and I love the word of God, you know, and, and I, I need more of this and less of me, more of God's word and less of me. And, and, you know, uh, I want to encourage you today, uh, just to stand on God's word, just to, to stand, take your stand on God's word and to, to live it out, uh, every single day, uh, for Jesus Christ. And, and, um, you know, uh, we're going to be in uh, Romans 8, and uh, we'll get there in just a little bit. So if you have your scripture and want to open up to that. You know, some years ago, there was uh, a cartoon. And this cartoon um, had a psychologist that um, was talking to one of his patients. And um, he, he said, uh, Mr. Figby, he said, uh, I think after lots of research and things, I can explain why you're feeling guilty. And uh, his patient said, oh yeah? He said, what is that? And he said, you're guilty. That's why you feel guilty is because you're guilty. And you know, we might chuckle at the cartoon, but it also hits a nerve. Because you know, before God, when we stand before God, we're all guilty of violating his two commandments. Loving him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then loving our neighbor as ourself. So if we violate his two great commandments, then those two commandments sum up all of his commandments, and we have all failed to love God with our entire being. I mean, what is worse is we've even deliberately shoved him aside and replaced him with other things that we choose to adore and worship. And because of our own selfishness, we have failed to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Therefore, we all have true moral guilt before the holy, one true God of the entire universe. And so I asked the question this morning, how do you deal with your guilt? How do you deal with, with your guilt? Because many people, they want to suppress that. They want to push it down. They don't want to think about it. Or they may even deny their own guilt. Others may try to excuse their guilt by thinking or saying something like, you know, well, I, I have my faults, but I'm, I'm only human. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm basically a good person. I don't intentionally try to, to hurt anyone. But however we try to get rid of our guilty feelings, there's still the stubborn fact that we stand truly guilty of sin before God. Who knows every wrong thought that we have, every wrong thing that we say, every wrong deed that we do. 
See, God's answer for our guilt is the cross of Jesus Christ. That is his answer for our guilt that we have. That's where he received the punishment that we deserve. See, as God in human flesh, his sacrifice satisfied God's holy wrath against our sin so that God could be both just, righteous, and also the justifier of those who have put their faith in his son, Jesus. So he is the one who has just, he is righteous in that judgment, but he is also the one who justifies or declares righteous those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. See, because Jesus paid our debt, Paul proclaimed in Romans 8, verse 1, he says, therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Man, that is wonderful news. That is wonderful news. And even though Paul has made it crystal clear, this truth, he knew (laughs) that guilt can be a stubborn and nagging problem even for believers. We still have to deal with our guilt. And I want to submit to you today that guilty Christians are not joyous Christians. We feel this burden, we feel this heaviness of of our own guilt for the things that we've done and and that keeps us from being joyful. It keeps us from, from having victory in Jesus. See, we cannot enjoy close fellowship with our Savior. We cannot be bold in our witness. We cannot confidently disciple others, which is what we're called to do because of our own guilt. Instead, we end up living lives as as hypocrites, putting up a front in fear that the truth about our sin will be exposed. You know, we've spent quite a bit of time in Romans chapter 8. If you're counting, this is the 13th sermon out of this chapter, okay, on this great chapter, and I believe that we are still only skimming the surface here. There's so much here. And, um, you know, it's fantastic declaration of God's grace and love towards us. And and Romans 8, above all, is a chapter of hope. I mean, it's a very important message for for God's people that we need to grab hold of because because we get consumed by our own guilt and it keeps us from living a victorious and joyous Christian life. We, 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 we get consumed by it. And in our cultural climate, where hostility towards faith seems to be rising at unprecedented rates, we must remember these great declarations from the Apostle Paul. I mean, look back at, at what Paul has, has told us in this chapter. Quick review here. He said, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Verse 9, he says, you are no longer have to be controlled by the, by the natural sinful nature, but you can be controlled by the Holy Spirit. In verse 14, he said, those who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God, the sons and daughters of God. And, and in verse 16, he said, the Spirit assures us that we are God's children and heirs. <laughs> we have an inheritance. 
We are heirs of his rich blessing. Verse 18 says, our present suffering is nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. <laughs> 23 says, we look forward to heaven where our full adoption as sons and daughters will be completed. And in verse 26, he says, the spirit is given by God to help us when we have trouble praying. The, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Verse 28 says, in every circumstance, God is working for the good of those who love him. And in verse 29, as believers, we are foreknown. <laughs> I love that. We're predestined, we're called, we're justified, and we will be glorified. So in response to these great announcements in chapter 8, especially what he has declared in verses 29 through 32, uh, the words that follow take this announcement to a whole nother level, okay, of what Paul is declaring here. And Paul suggests that these truths that he shared with us should lead us into overwhelming confidence. Not in us, but in him. It should lead us to overwhelming confidence. And these final verses in Romans 8, Paul asks what John R.W. Stott, he calls them five unanswerable questions. These rhetorical questions are designed to drive home Paul's point. And we looked at two of them last week, and we're going to finish up this series uh, next week with the last one, and we're going to focus on questions three and four today. But, but just a, a quick, a brief review. Last week we discussed question one and two where Paul asked this. He said, if, number one, if God is for us, who's against us? I mean, <laughs> it's important to read that question correctly. I mean, if Paul had asked just who's against us, I mean, the answer would be <laughs> lots of people. I mean, think about it. Non-believers. People who are skeptical about faith. Maybe people from other religions would be against us. Mainstream media would be against us. Maybe some friends, maybe classmates might be against us. Some family members who think maybe we've gone off the deep end and, you know, become a fanatic of some sort. And most of all, I want to say Satan and his demons are going to be against us. But Paul's question is, if God is for us, who is against us? In other words, who can really fight against us? Who can defeat us if God is for us? <laughs> you know, when I was growing up, we used to play um, pickup pick up games of football and, and, and baseball um, in, in the, the schoolyard right behind our house in, in Portland. And, and um, um, there was a group of us who were all about the same age and we would meet up on Saturday and we'd, you know, one of the boys would bring a football and hey, I'll meet you at the school and we'd all go over there. We'd see him out there getting ready to play and so we'd go out there. But uh, there was, we were all about the same age and, and um, except for this, this one fella and his name was Pat Reith. Now, Pat Reith, he was, I don't know if he was older than, than everybody else a little bit, but he was uh, several inches taller and um, probably uh, outweighed each one of us by at least 50 pounds. He was a big husky guy. 
And uh, whenever we would pick up teams, we, you know, we, we were all still trying to get our coordination together. Uh, but Pat had it all together, okay? And uh, when we chose up sides, we always knew that <laughs> if Pat was for us, that we were going to win. I mean, Pat was that unmatched advantage. If you got to choose him for your team, you guys were going to win. That's all there was to it. He was that much bigger, that much faster, that much stronger. So you always wanted Pat to be on your team. So the question that he asks here is, if God is for us, who is against us? And the answer is nobody. No one can ever match the power of the creator of the universe. Because when almighty God is for us, when he is for you, there is no enemy that can stand against us. Our victory is sure. It's going to happen. He's that unmatched advantage. The second question that Paul asks, moving on, he says, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Wow. You know, my, my wife is, is serving in the nursery this morning, but when I married my wife 36 years ago this month, um, I want you to know that I married up, okay? I, way up. I mean, out of my, you guys don't have to be so exuberant with the amens, okay? Just tone it down just a little bit, all right? But um, early on, early on in our marriage, I used to worry you know, that, that she would discover the real me and that she might find someone better and leave me. And there's a sense in which we often feel the same way about our relationship with Christ. We make a commitment to him and then we become afraid that God will leave us on our own and we know that we won't survive that we need him, we desperately need him. And see, Paul argues from the greater to the lesser. He says, he who did not spare his own son, but he delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? I mean, there's two points here to Paul's, two, two parts to his point. The first one is that God has already given us the greatest gift he can give. He's given us his son. God has already invested heavily in us by giving us his son. And, and Paul said, God did not spare his own son. He could have spared his own son. He could have called down 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could, have, he could have done a lot of things, but he did not spare his own son. He could have struck down all of the Lord's opponents, but he didn't do so because he knew it was the only way for us to be made righteous before God. See, I really cannot conceive of a love that would cause me to give up my child. 
I cannot conceive that kind of love. And God's love for me is deeper than any love I have ever known or experienced. And God is deeply committed to us. And he's met our greatest need, which was for salvation and new life. And he did it at a very great, expensive, personal cost. And because of the love that God has already shown to us, we know that God will provide what we need when we need it. God has already demonstrated his commitment. He has already invested deeply in us and he's not about to abandon us now. Not after what it cost him. He's going to see this through. See, the Lord will provide a friend when we need it. He will bring peace in the midst of the storm. He will give us guidance when we're confused. He will provide comfort in times of loss. He will give us strength to begin again after we have failed. And our Lord is with us to the finish. He is with us through it all. Moving to that third question, which is the topic here of our sermon today, our message Who will bring a charge against God's elect? (laughs) You know, every, almost every parent will tell you, you can criticize me and you can attack me, but you better leave my children alone. Most of us feel that way. You can, you can criticize me. You can attack me. I'll take it all day long. Leave my kids out of it. See, Paul calls calls us chosen. We are those who are specially loved by God. And there's three things here. He says, there will be charges made against us. (laughs) You know, one of the dangers of writing sermons and being on the radio and, and having your teaching available through podcasts on the internet is that you become a target for critics. I receive emails sometimes Uh, ever so often, and sometimes maybe a phone call, phone message that's kind of laced with hatred, that somebody is not not happy about things, and there are people who question my salvation, my intelligence, my concern for the lost, and I understand that that comes with the territory. But listen, if you attempt to preach the word of God, if you attempt to live out and practice what you preach, people are going to criticize you. I mean, we all have to get past our desire to be liked. Facebook has made it so much harder for us because we want people to like our photos, the things we post, Oh man, look how many likes you got on that. It's not just kids. All of us have a desire to be liked. And if we're going to stand on the word of God, if we're going to preach the word of God, if we're going to live the word of God, then we've got to get over our desire to be liked. See, I learned a long time ago that I'm preaching to an audience of one. I have to be faithful to him. 
I have to have his approval is the only like that I care about. And that's what allows a person to stand in the pulpit and preach the word of God. Because everybody wants to have strings attached. We all do. That's our nature. See, people will criticize us. People will call us narrow-minded and judgmental. Others will call us hypocrites and phonies. There will be those who tell us that we are wrong in our beliefs and we're depraved in our actions. And let's not forget Satan, who is known as the accuser. He's the one who is quick to point out our sins and he underscores our struggles. Satan frequently attacks God's children with the words, how could someone who loves Jesus act this way? See, many of the charges made against us will be true. (laughs) Some of the things Satan will say about us will be true. Some of the things that others say about us will be true. Some of the most pointed accusations against us actually come from within us. We we, we voice it like this, well, I'm my own worst enemy. But some of those accusations are true. There'll be times when we've seen our own struggle and we accuse ourselves and we see our inconsistencies and we know the pollution that is in our own hearts and in our own minds and the way we conclude that no one who lives that way couldn't possibly be a child of God. But you know what? Paul declares that the verdict is already in. God has declared us Not guilty. God has declared us not guilty. And the word he uses for charge means to make a formal accusation in court or what we call to press charges. And what Paul seems to be saying is who can make a charge against us and have it stick? You know, in our country, once a court has set you free from a charge, You cannot be charged for that crime again. It's called double jeopardy. You know, in the the, the devotional, Our Daily Bread, I read about a man who confessed to a Wisconsin judge that two years earlier in the same court, he had been charged with murder and was found innocent. And the man said, but I was guilty. He admitted that and the judge quickly conferred with the district attorney and and to see if the man could be brought up on trial for murder and they discovered that because of the principle of double jeopardy, the man could not be tried again for that crime. Although he was indeed a murderer, he could not be punished for it. And according to God's justice, we who are in Christ were as guilty as as that man before we came to Christ. But now we are just as unpunishable. We've been declared not guilty. Why? Not because of a legal technicality, but rather because of any and every sin we've ever committed or will commit has been fully prosecuted in Christ as he died on the cross. Every single sin that we have committed or will commit has been fully prosecuted on the cross. And once 
is all that the law demands. See, there's still consequences when we do wrong. There's still consequences when we do wrong as believers. But as far as the penalty of the law is concerned, Jesus' death places us in a wonderful position of being exempt from eternal punishment. Do we fail? Yes. Is some condemnation deserved? Absolutely. Are there times when our relationship with God can be strained because of our sin? Yes. Can these things invalidate our salvation? Never. Our sin has been paid for and God has already justified us and declared us not guilty. Not guilty. And just in case we don't get the point, Paul goes on with his fourth question. And he says there in verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. I love this because Paul gives several reasons why no one can condemn us. The first one is that Jesus died for our sins. Jesus died for our sins. And then he rose again to prove that this payment was sufficient and acceptable to God. And now our Savior is at the right hand of God. And not only that, he's there interceding for us. I mean, this word intercede has the idea of someone who comes to our defense. This is about to get good, folks. I mean, some people may want to condemn us. But understand that Jesus is always at the right hand of the Father to remind him that he was condemned in our place. <laughs> I love this. The, the Savior, he rises to our defense. When the enemy wants to accuse us, when the enemy brings that accusation, our Savior rises and he says, I paid for that already. I've already paid for that. I mean, suppose you have a, a cell phone bill and the company contacts you and, and, and somehow didn't credit your payment to your account and then they maybe threaten legal action if you don't pay. I mean, what do you do? What do you do when something like that happens? Well, you produce the receipt or you produce the canceled check to show that you did indeed pay the bill. But the receipt settles the issue. When you show the receipt, hey, I already have paid this. It settles the issue. And in a sense, every time someone brings a charge against one of God's children, someone who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, Jesus produces the receipt. He said, I already paid for that. Right, here's the receipt. See this mark in my hand? See this one? See this hole in my side? I've already paid that debt. I mean, hallelujah. Hallelujah. We have an advocate in Jesus Christ. He paid the debt on our behalf. You know, over in Zechariah chapter 3, there's a wonderful picture of what happens, of, 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 of what has happened to every child of God. Now, Satan is always there trying to accuse. And in Zechariah 3, Verse one and following, it says this. It says, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan, the accuser, 
standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is this not a brand uh, plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. And he spoke and he said to those who were standing before him, saying, remove the filthy garments from him. And he again said to him, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Oh, that's what happens to us. <laughs> I love this. We, like Joshua, the high priest here, are like a stick that has been snatched from the fires of hell. We had these filthy garments on and, and he comes and he, he, he replaces those with, with festal robes, with, with garments of praise, with, with garments that are clean and, 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 and brand new. <laughs> we don't have to wear those filthy rags anymore. Our Savior defends us from those who would condemn and he makes us new. As I conclude this, I just want to offer a couple of, of things here. First, I would say it's important that we remember that these promises are only for believers in Jesus Christ. These affirmations are not for those who go to church. They're not for those who try to be good. They're not for those who are well-respected. These affirmations apply only to those who have recognized their own sin and rebellion and have laid that at the feet of Jesus, counting him and his death for their punishment for those sins. See, these promises are only for those who have put their faith and trust in him. And I wonder, do you feel abandoned today? In some way, do you feel abandoned? Do you feel the sting of accusation? Are you so overwhelmed by your own failure that you do not feel? Or maybe you only feel the condemnation of others? Or maybe you feel like God condemns you as well? Listen, Jesus died for all of those very things that haunt you. All of those questions that go through your mind, all of the things that you know, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this kind of love. You know what? None of us do. But the fact is, is he came and he died. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross so that you and I could be made right before almighty God. He paid for the crimes that you committed and that I committed. If you will turn to him and receive him and trust him for salvation and new life, those voices of condemnation will never be able to hurt you again. There will still be those who take the opportunity to remind you of your failures. And by the way, those people are not your friends. But because of your faith in Christ, you can know that even though some of the charges are true, <laughs> they will not stick in the court of God. You've been set free. You've been declared innocent, not guilty, and made new. See, I want to encourage you to come to him today. Secondly, I would say these questions are not meant to be an academic exercise. They're meant 
to infuse us with confidence, overwhelming confidence, because our salvation is sure and those who trust in Christ will never be cast away. We can have our critics and and we'll have times when we stumble and fall, but God's love will remain sure and steadfast, even faithful when we're not faithful. He loves us. His promise of salvation is guaranteed for everyone who believes. See, we don't have to be afraid or tentative any longer. We don't have to worry about that we're somehow going to make some horrible mistake that's going to get us kicked out of the kingdom of God. See, God has invested deeply in each one of us. He didn't lift us up just to let us down. So I encourage you today, live boldly for the Savior. Dare to share your faith with someone else. You've been set free. Be bold in your attempts to serve him and let nothing discourage you. But here's our problem. You know, when we're first learning how to type, Miss Shirley Summers, she taught typing. When you're first learning how to type, you need to figure out, you know, all you do is really watch your fingers. But we need to quit watching our fingers. If we want to be good at typing, you have to stop looking at your hands and you have to start looking at the document that you're copying or you need to look at your computer screen and and stop looking at your fingers. And walking with Christ is very similar to that. We have to stop looking down at how we're doing and spending our time (laughs) congratulating ourselves for any good deed that we do. But the other extreme of that is also we get paralyzed by our mistakes. We think, man, I, I just can't even do it. See, instead, we need to learn to keep our eyes on Jesus and focusing on his promises. If God is for us, who could stand against us? No one can make a charge against us that can stick. And no one can condemn us because of the law of double jeopardy. Folks, God will never, ever abandon his children. He is a good, good father. He doesn't have any perfect kids, but he's a good, good father. And we are his, and he will bring us home. And folks, when we keep these truths in our hearts, we will start living with the confidence that we need and serving the Lord with the boldness and the joy. We gotta deal with the guilt. And his answer is in the cross. Would you pray with me? Loving Father, I thank you for this time and I thank you for your word. Father, I thank you that you made a way for each one of us And Father, I pray that as we continue to worship you, Father, that you would draw us to you. Father, that you would assure us of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And Father, when the enemy comes to accuse us, Father, when others come to accuse us of of not living up to the standard, may we recognize that you, your son Jesus, is the standard 
not my neighbor, not my friend, but you are the standard. And Father, I pray that we would never cease to strive to be more like Jesus. Father, I pray that we would walk in confidence. Father, knowing that you have declared us not guilty. Father, that we would lay those accusations, that we would lay all of those charges at the feet of Jesus. Father, knowing that he paid the way, that he paid it all. And Father, that we don't have to carry that. We don't have to carry that burden of guilt. We can walk in joyful victory knowing that our sins are forgiven, that God is just in his judgments and that we have been declared not guilty by the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that would be true of each one of us today. Father, I ask that you would pour your spirit out even now. Father, I pray for a great revival. Father, I pray for a great revival among believers. Father, how we need stirring, Holy Spirit-drenched revival in this land. Father, I pray that you would bring nourishing rains back to this land. Father, I pray that you would, would reign in our hearts. Father, even as your rain nourishes the land, that, that your spirit would nourish our hearts. And Father, we would walk in the freedom that the Holy Spirit brings us as he confirms and assures us that we are not guilty before you. Father, that we would not listen to the lies of the enemy. Father, that we would not listen to the lies of our own deceitful hearts. But God, that we would stand on your word and the finished work of Jesus Christ. Father, we love you. I pray that in this time to come, a time of, of response. Father, a time of invitation. Father, that, that, that you would invite us just to fellowship in close communion with you. Father, I pray that that would be so this morning. And God, that you would guide and direct that time. Father, thank you so much for all that you do for us every single day. And Father, we give you praise and glory for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen.